You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm Eddie Jordan. And this week, we have something very special on the show. Sadly, DC is not alongside me today. But instead, we've got a suitable replacement. 25 times world champion, Mr. Adrian Newey, is going to help me on this podcast. And we have another legend of the sport and another world champion, 1979 world champion, Mr. Jody Schechter! How are you, Jody? All right. Oh, we get a typical <laughs> response from Jody. <laughs> Off to a flying start. out there, I should remind you, Jody Schechter, world champion, Formula One wins 10 times, podiums 33. He was born almost 74 years ago in East London, and I'm going to ask Adrian to talk to him about East London because uh, this is an area that he knows particularly well, as his uh, lady wife is from the surrounding area. So, Adrian, why don't you join into the programme? Yeah, sure. So, Jody, what was, I mean, East London, growing up in the 60s, 70s, how did you find it? How did you get into cars? Uh, well, they had the Grand Prix there, first of all. My uncle raced in 1937 in the Grand Prix, so racing was all around. My dad had a garage, and uh, when the cars came there, he said, use the workshop. So um, there was racing all around at that time. And so you got your first car? I got a, my dad gave me a car to go to work and back, an old second-hand Renault 8, and it went once to work, and the next time it came down for the first race. All right. And then you kept tuning it and tweaking it, I'm sure. Yes, I kept tuning it, and then I had to get a special, it's a Gordini engine, which was, there were very few of them. And one and had a crash and turned over and burnt completely. I bought it for, I think, 25 rand or whatever it was, and then started working on it and built it up into a car that could compete with the works cars. So you're doing all your own mechanicking, everything. all your own tweaking? Built the engine, gearbox, everything. And, and, and I bet uh, you got the black and decker out on the, you got the drill out on all the, the bits, didn't you? As well. Everything. I cut the pistons with a hacksaw and then got a piece of glass and a sandpaper like that. And, and that's how I did it. And then I had the valves. I got a valve with cutters on and like this. And uh, if you want to know more, then I thought the biggest valves I could get, and I turned it around, and they missed, just missed like this. I started it up at 3,000 revs. It dropped a valve, so I stopped it, and I cut a little more until I got to 8,000 revs. And that's right, the biggest valves I could ever get at 8,000 revs. But it lasted the races. Yeah, every time I didn't know what to do, I came and drilled some more holes in it. So tell me, I've heard the version from Helmut, Helmut Marco 
The, you were racing and helmet. I guess some of the Europeans were down. They're doing two liter sports cars. I'm not sure. For the, the Sunshine Series, of right? Brazil. And you, so, yeah, you're you're in your Renault. Well, no. Well, I I ra- I'd race in my Renault, not on those races, right? But because uh, I got it into a two liter sports car, in, in and I was offered that, right? So well, I ran a Mazda first in for first one, yeah. So my, my, the story Helmet tells, yeah, is that he was. Came out of the pits and there was this saloon car ahead of him and it was at all sorts of wild angles and he was following slow, carefully in his two-litre sports car, just thinking, what's going to happen here? This guy's car control's impressive. When the talent ran out, yeah, you rolled it, you're upside down, helmet stopped and helped to pull you out. Is that, is that your side of it? So what, how I rolled it is I spun and I was going backwards, so I thought, well, I'll just... Go like that, I'll get and carry on. And as I did that, because the engine was in front, I suppose the weight was, it just turned, just turned over. But it didn't, it didn't quiet me down. Your no, driving no. style stayed the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> South African wild man, so that's you, I take it. And um, on that very first race that I think Adrian was describing, you spun a total of 14 times and you were black flagged. For dangerous driving. So it's been in your blood all the life. Yeah, and I didn't know what a black flag was. <laughs> so I kept going. <laughs> oh. Did McLaren realise what they were letting themselves in for in 72 when you arrived there? Because um, I did Formula Ford first. Yeah. And then Formula 3, I borrowed a chassis and engine. And, um, and then they offered me a drive Formula 2 the year after. That was my second year in, in Europe. For McLaren? Yeah. That was a tidy little car, that Formula 2 car, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the same as uh, Formula 5000. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember 1973, British Grand Prix. It was the first race I ever went to at Silverstone. On the outside at Woodcut, my dad, who was a complete health freak, had for the first time relented and allowed me to buy a hamburger, as he called it then, what we'd now call a beef burger, So I proudly went up into the grandstand to watch the race start. And what happened next? Can't remember. Can't remember. (laughs) I can remember very well. (laughs) If you want all the details. Um, They they changed my tires because they were uh, too soft. They were scraping. So they put a hard one on the left. And I went, slid it a little bit for the first lap. I thought it was okay. Went into Woodco and it just jumped on me. And then I was sliding along the pit wall like this, and I thought if I let the brakes off, it'll go forward and calculate it quite right. And it just stopped in the middle of the track. And I was lucky to survive it, actually. Yeah, well, but I, you're not telling us how many cars you took out in the ensuing period. Yeah. Nine? <laughs> I'm not sure. I didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I can just remember all the dust and shit flying everywhere. Oh, there was an airbox that flew up above the bridge. I dropped my hamburger, which I was very upset about. <laughs> <laughs> I managed to later recover it by going down under the grandstand and um, yeah. finding it and plonking it back. But yeah, it was it was quite a dramatic start for you. And then at the end of the year, obviously, there was that horrific accident with Francois Sever. Yeah. Kind of the you got some flack, I think, after Silverstone from some of your Yes. Piers, Emerson and co. So that sort of 73, your first full year, quite a difficult year in many ways for you. Showed obviously tremendous pace, but got that wild man reputation. I was on the front row in 
Oh, poor Ricard. Yeah. Well, there we go. That's our third race. Do you feel kind of at the end of that year, did you reflect on it? What had happened with Silverstone, with, with Francois and kind of, you know, how, how, how did you develop yourself as a driver through those early years? I, you know, I think I just wanted to go as fast as I can and prove that I could drive faster than other people. I don't think that really worried me. If I cooled down, let's say, it was probably Ken Tyrrell that sort of said you got to finish a race and all those sorts of things and maybe that's why well maybe just experience you know yeah because a very dangerous time you kind of just put that to one side and got on with it when i, I think that, that that when i said francois got killed i was the first one there and then tried to lose i remember there, there was sparkling on the fire on the battery and everything and fires were a big problem try to get him on the safety the safety belt and then I don't remember what I saw when I turned around. Somebody sent me a photograph with my arms up in the air because I was stopping other drivers. It was finished. But I never, I don't remember ever what I saw. Yeah. Probably. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably for the best. I think that's, well, that's such an ability, isn't it, to be able to compartmentalise and to, to focus on what's important. And that's obviously what you managed to do in those years. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the first time I realised you know, the first time I think I'd seen a dead person, I don't remember, which is great, because Jackie Stewart said to me, you're lucky you did, you don't remember that, yeah. um, or don't remember it, it blocked out of my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow. But then you carried on, you went to, Tyrrell was next? Tyrrell offered me a drive, yeah, yeah. A, to replace, to replace Jackie. Mm -hmm. And then Francois went, so I was the, not one number one driver with Depay. Yeah. So there were, two, there were two drivers that hadn't done Formula One before. And that's when, that was the six-wheeler, so the year after that. Yes, the year yeah. after was six-wheeler. Yeah, which is, a, I guess, a, that required a very different driving style. Well, I never agreed with why it was put on and the, the, the reason why it was put on, but um, it was a fun car to drive. You could drive it sideways any way, any time you wanted. It was sort of a long and short wheelbase combined in a way that, that's the way I saw it it broke nearly every second race uh, something broke or fell off of it so what's your style in terms of obviously way before data recorders so the setup of the car there seemed to be two ways of doing it in those days one was that drivers would come in and, and describe the car and then leave it to the race engineer to suggest others like Prost and Lauda used to effectively engineer it from the cockpit. What, how did you go about developing the car? I was engineering it from the cockpit. Yeah. Whether that was an advantage or disadvantage, I think sometimes if you got a good engineer, it was a disadvantage. Because I'd built my own cars, I understood it from that point of view. But my, I, I had a problem because I could drive around any problem. So when you tested the car, I would nearly come up with the same lap times more or less. Because if it was understeering, I'd just flick it. The Renault had a lock diff at the back. And that probably started driving that style where you, if you just. Like a go kart. You just hurt it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so it was a problem. If I had a bad car in a race, it was, I was a good driver, if you want, from that point of mm -hmm. view. But I think I was not as good at developing a car or getting it sorted so I could have a smooth. Card. I just always went on lap times. But you then you go forwards to to your championship year to 1979. So ground effects now in the Venturi cars. 
you had a stunning year that year. And, and you know, that sideways style that you exemplified perhaps was, you must have refined that because as, ground effect cars don't like going sideways. Sure. Uh, not as not as badly as the, the modern ones because yeah. it wasn't so good. But also the tires were getting more to the edge. When I started, it was an advantage because the tires were really hard. So the more you threw it in, the hotter they got and the, the better it was. But then the tires got to the edge, like qualifying tires, which I hated. Um, so you just had to drive it a little smoother. That's all. So know. you adapted. Yeah. You kept adapting. I think that's the key, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Adrian, uh, we just before you skip into the championship year, I think for me, one of the really romantic sides of things was the Wolf years. Yeah. You know, I think if I'm right, you, you were on pole or you won your first race in the Wolf, yeah. which was outstanding. Which was Wolf's first race as well. Hmm? It was also the first race for Wolf, wasn't it? That's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, no, no. It's yeah, an unbelievable yeah, yeah. story. It yeah, was yeah. the first race of the Wolf, and he won that race, I think, South Africa, um, Argentina. Argentina, yeah. Argentina, yeah. Um, tell us about that, because I think that is quite a, a phenomenal history story in itself. Well, we, they built a car, and um, we, we had no track to test. So I sent a telex to old man Ferrari, can I come and test on your track? And he said, yes. So we went down there and tested. We were the only other car other than Ferrari that had run on the circuit. So we didn't. and uh, went to Argentina. The car wasn't particularly fast, but um, it was really, really hot. And I was always very, very fit and came up. I remember coming, I think it was Pache or somebody. He's, he was leading and he was all over the track. And then I passed him and he had got sick in his helmet because it was so hot and I won the race because of... Basically, I could keep running yeah. as hard as the car could go until the end. I remember there was that 70s program, Superstars. Yeah. That's, that's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, which yeah, yeah. was a kind of sportsmen from all different backgrounds, rowing, runners, whatever, swimmers, and indeed racing drivers. And you might think that Formula One drivers, you know, they just sit in the car, twiddle the steering wheel, push the pedals, so they don't need to be that fit. But I think James Hunt won it. And then you won it against all the all of the athletes of the there day. Were, there were European uh, championships, which I came second in. It was in Israel, and then the world superstars in Kibaskane in America. I won the world superstars, which was which I was very proud about it because a racing driver wasn't supposed to be an athlete. And Edwin Moses, who had what a hurdlist had won, he's, he's broken his own la uh, world record eight times or something. It was really interesting working with, a, or uh, being amongst all those other athletes and what do you eat and how do you train and all that. It was quite interesting. But yeah, I won $35,000, I think, in those Way days. Way to go, yeah. Money. Absolutely. But I was really proud of that, yeah. So, um, Gilles Villeneuve, your time at Ferrari, we're often intrigued because to get somebody, the last time we had somebody from Ferrari was Gerhard Berger and, he, and Jean Alessi, and they talked with such love and affection, but at the same time, um, it's not easy to drive for Ferrari with all the pressures that it's involved. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I decided to go there, I said, you're completely mad, because I was supposed to be a really uh, grumpy guy, which probably was at some time. But you have your moments. Have you changed? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, I had a great time there because, um, you know, I suppose I have as much bullshit if I want to as they did. And um, 
You know, I said early on, because there was always a, a, the Italian press wanted to go have stories that he's fighting against him and the drive, all the drivers fought against each other before, the, or the press made mm-hmm. them. So I just get together with Gilles and the guy, let's forget all that, we work together. We don't worry about that. And that's what we did. And did you avoid the press on that basis? Didn't avoid it, but you didn't take it what they were saying. You knew what we were doing inside yeah. and... It's funny, I mean, I've never had an argument with any of my teammates. And you see today, it seems like that's the norm. I think it is the press continually, you know, that's their their way of doing things to try and drive that wedge. Possibly the worst, yeah, 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 or the best at it. So would you say on any given driver, and now we see Leclerc and I see Carl Sainz, would you say the pressure on them is infinitely more than it is on any other driver pairing? Well, for the, it, it, the difference press. for me was when you drive for Ferrari, you're driving for Italy. When you're driving for McLaren or another team you're riding, you're driving for the team. That's the big difference. Yep. And so you got the pressure of Italy on your shoulders because whatever you did, it was in all the yep. papers. And everything is analysed in huge detail. Yeah. Yep. And I didn't care about that. I just wanted to do what we were doing, what I thought was right, so did you, in that time, I take it you didn't live in Italy when you were driving for... No, no, I was in Monaco. I used to, I had a flat in Modena, so I could go there early for practice. And, and then just avoid, didn't bother reading the press, so if, it's, if you got some bad reviews, it didn't, you didn't know about it and you didn't care? Yeah, more or less, yeah. I listen, and I didn't talk to a lot of press because I, I always admired Jackie in a, in a way he could talk to everybody and then get into the car and do the settings. I couldn't. I had to really concentrate. So if somebody came up to me when I was concentrating, which, which wing should I go? Should I alter this or alter that? I wouldn't even talk to them. I'd just keep thing. And so I got a – I won the, um, which I was quite proud of, the uh, Lemon Prize for three years in a row which is the most uncooperative with the press. Oh, lovely. <laughs> You'd love that. And I, got, I went and got it. Yeah, I said, hey, I'm proud. Thanks very much. And I so got do it. you have a trophy? Do you yeah, have three trophies yeah. or somewhere? Yeah, there's a trophy somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. <laughs> so... Um, you go most places in the world and you love this sideways action, not just of you, but of Gilles Villeneuve. But they were surely the best times of Formula One that you can recall. Well, it's the most dangerous. That's know? beyond doubt. Yeah. Um, so I had a great time at Ferrari. I loved it. And, you know, Jill and I were friends. We, we laughed a lot. Uh, I got my confidence, really, because he, 
his big thing was he wanted to be this daredevil driver. And, and for me, that was a weakness and that gave me confidence. I remember driving up to Ferrari with him and I said, you just behave yourself. You're not doing anything. And it, it was fine until about two, three kilometers before the factory. And then he started and, and, and doing a 360 and stuff like that. So he loved that image, which for me was a weakness. And do you think he then took that, so like if there was, you know, that horrible accident that claimed his life, where I think he went round the outside, didn't he? He did something. Well, I think, as I understand it, you, you know, you get into the end, his teammate was quicker than him, as I understand. Yep. So, and I've done that. I think it was Watson that... John Watson. Uh, and I tried to take him. It was a smaller... I think it was in Canada, and I didn't qualify. Mm. And it was like four laps to go, and he was, I'd caught him up. So wherever I wanted, I went past him, and I knocked wheels, and he said, you know, came to me, and then he realized that I was, you know, desperate to try and get into the race, and he sort of accepted it, I suppose. Yeah. But I guess that daredevil, if you if you in the car and you that's become your persona, then perhaps you take risks that really aren't sensible. At times when you're put into that sort of pressure that you're not qualifying or I presume when Jill was that his teammate was quicker than him, yeah. then that puts a massive pressure on you, yes. Yeah. And you do things yeah. which, which you, you don't get away with sometimes. Mm. So 1980, you retired very early at 30. That's very early by nowadays standards. Yeah. Um, tell us what you did with the police service. First of all, I didn't retire to start that company. I retired because I knew I had to get out of Formula One. I had, let call it the magic of Formula One had gone out. One to two drivers were getting killed every year. Um, and I thought it's time for me to get out. And I retired halfway through that, that, that season, or I announced my retirement off. And I wasn't very good. And I analyzed that, that year, why? Because Jill was quicker than me nearly all the time that year. And, but the year before, he wasn't. So I don't know if it's subconscious or was when you wake up in the middle of the night, you think about a car or I don't, I don't really understand. But then I, then I looked at things to do. I want to try to organize a World Series racing like the IROC Series mm -hmm. and went to Ford and wanted to get a Formula One engine and put it in one of the escorts or something. And it didn't happen. I spent a year on that. And uh, then I, I was in Monaco and I saw in a book a, uh, a shooting system. They were using live rounds, was an English system, shooting through a paper screen and turning a light on the back. And I thought, what a great concept, but how badly it was done. And I said to the guy that the magazine was in, can you get me a time to go and see it? And I went to see it. And then a friend of mine in America did some research and he said, uh, one of these guys, police in America need a simulation system because they just have a, tar, a screen, paper screen that goes like that, which is a friendly and a non-friendly, and they have to make a decision. And there's a, a technician who was doing a prototype of one that used a laser, which was much more sophisticated. So I went over there and spoke to him and did a deal. Build me a prototype, please. And that's how it all started. I didn't like guns. I didn't know much about police. Um, well, I was arrested once. <laughs> <laughs> but you made a pile of money. Well, you had, I mean, more importantly, obviously, yes, you, you kind of fell into it to an extent. You, you kept your eyes open. You saw it, the opportunity. But then to grow that from that kind of 
embryonic idea into the yeah. what it became. Um, I mean, I think people coming up, they think an idea is, I'm going to be rich, an idea. An idea is sort of 10% of what the whole thing is. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I learned a lot in Formula One, mainly moving technology very fast and how to train to an event. And what we were doing is training police, first of all, and soldiers how to get ready for an event, which was similar to what you do if you're going to be a Formula One driver. You, you, some of the rules are the same and, you know, train like you're going to fight or practice like you're going to race type of thing, you know. And um, so it started off and the first case was made in a, on a farm out of fiberglass, you know. And the computers were just coming in there. I got these exhaust brackets that were rubber and so I could pull it off the van and drop it and it would still work. And, yeah, put it together. I mean, finding engineers and uh, nearly every, every turn could have failed the whole lot, you know. But we put it together and it, over the years got better and better, put money in for about, so which was racing money for, I think, three years. Then it, it was, ran on its own after that. Mm. But you went from being effectively, in reality, a driver is kind of an employee, but you learn a lot of skills. And so you're able to translate those skills, having observed how all the racing teams worked, because you went from employee effectively to employer. Uh, yeah, or, or uh, if you do go back to, to racing, I was from a driver to a team manager. Yeah. That's, and that's so, so. And, um, yeah, it was just brute force, mm. you know. I don't care if you have a fight on the corridor. Make it happen, you know, and that's what we did. We made it happen. Adrian, what a, a, interesting thing. He says he didn't necessarily make a lot of money, but he made enough money to buy a two and a half thousand acre farm in the best area of UK. Can I, can I correct you, as usual? Thank you. Um, in Formula One, I didn't make a lot of money, but the American one, I did make a lot of money. That's what I'm talking about. So you came back with the money and you bought Loverstock. Yes. And, um, and I remember playing there which was one of the highlights, because people may not realize, but Carfest is actually on your farm. And what you do with Chris Evans uh, and the lineups that you have there is quite amazing. But on top of that, and we'll talk about the music in a second, because we're in your house here in, on the beach in Second Beach in Clifton, and all I can see is speakers. And I remember walking along the beach here, and, and I'm sort of blasted out of the place with rock and roll music coming off the, the deck here. What is it with you and rock and roll and music and noise and speakers? I don't know. I suppose after a lot of whiskey, I like a lot of bass. <laughs> and, uh, and there, if you can see that subwoofer, which is I about, know you're a subwoofer. about you know, a, a meter and a half. And... Uh, my, my place in, in um, which I think you've been to, my summer house, yeah. I've got um, four, five uh, big so, subwoofers. One of them's underground. Um, so that's why the, the whole ground shakes when you're there. Yeah, but I also did the timing from every speaker to where I was and the distance. So I called it the sweet spot because the music was all around. So all the, let's say all the forces were hitting you in one place. And uh, it's contrary to what most people do with, with sound, but I think it's actually better if you're in the right place. 
There's only one person that sits in the right place in Laverstock. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> King Tut here, yeah. Depends, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us when um, the story I love is actually when you first came down here to South Africa and you started playing really loud and you got various complaints from your neighbours. What was your solution? Well, also, also in, in, in England, but I, I don't like doing that. But yeah, what I thought about is, is I should get everybody and ask them what tracks they like. And I could be the DJ for the, for the... I thought you put a playlist, requests under everybody's... Not quite, but yeah, that, that, was, the, that was the idea or the thought or the joke, if you want. Yeah. Just to give the li listeners some idea of where we're sitting. We're in an air conditioning room. We've had to close the doors and the blinds because the noise of the sea up against the house is... Uh, quite alarming, and I should tell you that I've been here when I saw the door that he has onto the beach is almost like a submarine door because it's completely watertight. And that's, listeners, so as in the, in the winter, he can have all the joy in the summer, but in the winter, the water doesn't come into the house. So you've spent a lot of time and effort into this place. Sure, absolutely. And, and you were restricted on the size, so every inch you had to maximize. In fact, that staircase is outside the house. It's in the garden. Have you nicked that? No, it's in the garden, but I put a roof on top of it. At least I put a, a, a piece of glass on top of ah, it. So okay. that, that's how. And that, it's not part of the title deeds, I suspect. Uh, I don't know what the title deeds are, actually. Jody, I think um, Adrian has talked to you all about your motor racing thing. And I just want, you know, how difficult was it for a South African to compete with visas and travel and everything else? Because I remember coming down here with, with David Coulthard himself, with Clarkson and various other people from Top Gear, and we did a tribute to you. Uh, over three days in Kailami, and I felt really moved with that. I loved it. Me too. And um, I, I presented the program for you, your brother Ian, who was also a Grand Prix uh, driver, um, and your kids, everybody was there. So it was amazing. So apartheid, how difficult really was it for somebody like you because you weren't able to come back here any time during that time? You weren't able to come back to sell. Most people, you're, you're adored and, and, and everything is around you. You go about open top buses and stuff like that when you win a world championship. But you lost all that. Was that a problem for you? Not, not really. I mean, you know, I was aware of it. Um, I think in Brands Hatch one time I had police that were following me in case something happened because there was a lot of protesting against it. But... Um, I was a racing driver and concentrating on racing and tried to let nothing else worry me. You know? But the fact of not being able to come back and meet family and stuff. That no, I could. I always came back. There was, a, there was not a problem. Every, every year I spent my, so those sort of months or two months in the gym and trying to get as fit as I could. My brother didn't get a, or they couldn't get a visa or couldn't get a visa to go to Japan, if I remember. But somehow they got me through. But mm. you were on a South African passport. Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, we've recently heard in an open report, Lewis Hamilton saying that he doesn't want to retire until the Grand Prix comes back to South Africa. Do you think he has long to wait? <laughs> I think it could have happened... What? Last year. Last, last year, year, yeah. My, there was a chance last year, my, wasn't there? My uh, nephew, who had spent, what, three years talking to government, getting everything in place, and uh, they were going to run it at Kyle Army. Formula One came down there, really, nearly to sign it up, as I understand. 
And the guy called on me, said, no, I want this much money and I want to do this and I want to do that. And the government, as I understand, saw the friction between the Watsons and, and backed away from it. It was that close of happening. Yeah. So one question I'd like to ask, you obviously always try to hide the sentimental side of you, that, you know, the rough, tough East London boy. But Monza, what was it, about three years ago? Your, I guess, 40th anniversary yeah. of, read, of winning the championship yeah. for Ferrari at Monza. Yeah. That was speci- very special for you, wasn't it? Yeah, very. It was. It was very special. I always said it was more special than winning the championship because winning the championship there was relief. I'd tried to win the championship for seven or eight years that I was in Formula One, and I, and I did it. Going back there, eh, I, I don't go to a lot of Grand Prix. And uh, my Ferrari sounds a lot better than it, the cars do today, or it did then. And, um, yeah, so it was very special for me. Whole family was down there to watch you? It was, yeah. The family portrait? It was actually the last time yeah. the whole family was together. Yeah, yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And it was very special for me. And coming back and driving the, driving the car, it just came straight back to you? It had Monaco gear ratio, so which wasn't very good at Monza. But I remember going down the back straight there and thinking, Oh, it's better not use the language that I use. Um, I thought, wow. But you get used to it, you know, after two or three laps, you... Big smile in the cockpit. So, yeah, yeah. So, Jody Schechter, and we're so honoured, we're so pleased to have you on here. And Adrian, um, I may be talking myself out of a job here because I think you are excellent, absolutely brilliant. But you say all the right in, things, Adrian. Before we get into the whiskey, because the whiskey, I'm... Looking at it in front of me, it's a wonderful bottle. It's called Summerhouse Whiskey. Uh, and on the bottom of it says, do not add water. Take a small amount and swallow it like medicine. When swallowed, draw breath through your mouth. Uh, by the time your third time and you've swallowed it, it becomes sweet. At this stage, you will start to talk rubbish and to dance. You will be enjoying yourself but not many others will be if they haven't had this. Where did you find all this from? Tell us the story about how you happened to have all this whiskey. Well, I was going to do a uh, restaurant on the uh, property next to me, which was owned by uh, Bacardi, Bombay, Sapphire, were making all their gin there. And um, it didn't happen. And they, um, I'd spent a lot of money doing all the preparation. They came and they very generously paid half of all my investment that I had in there. And I said, one more thing, I want a barrel of whiskey for my summer house. Aha. And, and they shook hands and I gave yeah. me a bottle of... Put that a, back, a, Adrian. No, <laughs> one of the key things you've missed here is that I th- I'm no whiskey es- expert, but I think normal bottle of whiskey is, what, about 40, 40%, 40%, 40%, 40% proof. The secret for why this gets you off your head very, very quickly <laughs> is it's 56%. It's cask strength, exactly. Oh, so. I don't know what strength it is, but I know it knocks you out pretty quick. Well, ladies and gentlemen and fellow anchors, um, that's it for today. Uh, it's been an absolute joy, a privilege. Uh, Jody Schechter, we never thought we'd tie you down because I know you don't do this sort of thing. So I want to say thank you because we are all so-called mates around this table. We're all uh, 
if you like, Camps Bay fans, or in particular Clifton, uh, and we spend some of our summer time here. It's a joy to see you, Adrian. Thank you for stepping in. Thank DC uh, will be very impressed with what he hears, and uh, I want to say thank you. And folks, remember to follow Formula for Success on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts, and you will find us on social media with the handle at F1 for Success. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.